Hello and welcome to Birth Trauma Training for Birth Workers, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Bauer, clinical psychologist and coach and mother of two traumatic births myself. This podcast is all about helping the helpers and supporting and training birth workers to feel connected and confident to navigate birth trauma. So what if there was a quick, effective way to move through the processing of your trauma, whether that's your own birth or witnessing at work, and it didn't involve going into loads of detail or necessarily having loads and loads and loads of sessions. So my guest today has specialist skills in how to do just that. Krista Dancy is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Roseville, California. She's also a doula, so this is such a special combo. I don't think she'll mind me saying that this is someone who is addicted to birth. Krista worked as a therapist for 15 years and had the same realisation that I've had, which is while she didn't necessarily choose birth trauma, birth trauma as a specialisation kind of chose her. And I was excited to talk to Krista today about her knowledge of EMDR. So if you've never heard of it, EMDR is a therapy approach that teaches the brain to process traumatic memories as if they're not traumatic. The World Health Organization recommends EMDR as one of the top two treatment approaches for trauma and for PTSD. The other one is cognitive behavior therapy. So I recommend, if you haven't listened to my episode on cognitive behavior therapy yet, go and listen to that one after you've listened to this one. Now, of course, these are two recommended approaches. They're not the only approaches. A huge value of mine in this work is helping people find holistic support options, both for birthing people and for the workers who might be carrying vicarious trauma in their bodies. EMDR is pretty cool though, and I'm looking at getting trained in it myself. I know you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode, so enjoy. Hi, Krista. How are you? Hi. I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about why birth trauma? How did you get into this sort of work? Yeah, I say that birth trauma is the specialty that chose me. Mm, me um, <laughs> I didn't know it was a thing. I, I started out as a therapist about 15 years ago. And, you know, it was something that I grew into awareness of. Um, I think because I became a mom for the first time Um, sometimes along with my clients and started to attract new mom clients themselves, uh, I started to notice this trend of people who didn't meet, you know, the technical definition of PTSD because maybe they didn't have a fear of a loss of life, which Mm. at the time was something that was, we were told as important. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I just wasn't quite sure what was happening. And over time, started trying to look for answers, started trying to find ways to help them. Um, At the same time, was developing a specialty in trauma, also the specialty that chose me, and found myself going to these great trauma researchers and these great thought leaders and standing in line at like book signings and conferences and just to ask them about birth trauma, who's doing work with trauma in birth. That's what I was calling it at the time. And just getting really blank stares. Of course, Mm -hmm. like most of these thought leaders were older men and they just really didn't have a lot to say about it. Mm -hmm. And so when I hit a dead end of what to help, what to do to help, I decided, well, I better figure it out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's the specialty that started. Um, Mm -hmm. So since then, I've trained as a certified birth doula. I do attend births. 
and uh, you know, a whole bunch of other things. I'm also a provider educator on the subject now, but way back in the early days, I didn't even know what it was that I was witnessing. I just mm. knew that there was suffering. I didn't even really know what to call it. Mm. I think this is so cool. I actually don't think I've met too many people who have the experience in the trauma work and trauma treatment and also attend births. Like mm-hmm. kind of, um, as I always say to people, it's, it's usually like third or fourth or fifth or whatever down the line that someone would even go and see someone who might even suggest the word trauma. So right. having someone at the start who knows what to look for and how to help prevent it and support a birth, I just think that's amazing. Like yes, it's for being so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like sometimes I question myself because you know, running a business and a nonprofit and then also being on call for birth, it's a lot. And I and I say, you know, is this what I should be doing? Um, I have two small children of my own, but you know, ultimately going to birth, it's this wonderful synergy because being in the birth room and being reminded over and over again of how powerful mm. that experience is. Um you know, now that I'm done having my own children, I think it'd be easy to lose touch with it and getting to just really be there, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the faces, the tears, the terror, the, um, the, the faces of the providers, the interactions of the relational dynamics, you know, Mm -hmm. all of those pieces, I feel like then just end up informing what I do in the therapy room. They go back and forth. So my -hmm. therapy self you know, changes who I am as a doula, but then my doula experiences change what I do here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just can't quit it, even though it might be a sane decision. I can't quit birth. It's funny. I think like these narratives and stories I hear from similar birth workers who are kind of like, yeah, see, I was the person who didn't want to do birth trauma either. I'm like, no, I just, you know, I planned for the gentle, boring <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. the birth I wasn't the person who was supposed to have these like really intense dramatic births but then yeah it chose me and I suppose that line of like well okay I'll sit here and have a pity party and go I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't do childbirth education because of these experiences ever again or I can go to you know what there's something I can get out of this to teach other people to translate it into something that is like there's actually some specific things that you can do to get yourself from a place of broken to strong, stronger than you can ever imagine. Yes. We know for you, one of the big things we wanted to talk about today was EMDR. What is it, Krista? Can you explain it for us? I'll do my best. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm. That's what it was in the early days. It's since moved beyond that. Um, It was something founded by Francine Shapiro, I believe, in the 90s. And essentially, in a nutshell, um, EMDR helps your brain reprocess traumatic memories as if they were not traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is, if I can give a little background on the difference. Okay. Um, 
a typical memory, if we use an example of your favorite, most delicious dinner, and you go to dinner, and for a short time after, those memories are what I would call salient. They have really intense sensory pieces to them. Mm -hmm. So for a short time after that dinner, you can remember every smell, every sizzle, the music, the coloring, the lighting, what you ordered, and it's vivid for a while. But by the time you go to bed that night, it's faded. The next day you wake up, it's faded. Still, a short mm -hmm. time later, it just becomes what we'd call factual memory. You, you might be able to remember you went to dinner and you might be able to remember you enjoyed it, but it's lost to the sensory vivid detail. Mm -hmm. And if time continues to pass, you might even just forget that it ever happened unless something prompted your memory. Like if something really memorable happened besides, but you wouldn't be really, it's still vivid. That's how memory is supposed to work because it makes room and it makes space for you to learn new things, experience new things, mm -hmm. and it gets all kind of integrated together. A traumatic memory, though, doesn't do that for a variety of nerdy reasons that I won't get into, but uh, a traumatic memory does not fade. It remains salient. It remains vivid over time, and it doesn't get integrated into new learning. It doesn't get integrated into new experiences. Mm -hmm. It becomes sort of the way I think of it as walled off yeah. or almost like an abscess where mm -hmm. over time people might get better at avoiding the things that trigger it. Yeah. but the intense invasive sensory piece of it does not fade with time and experience. Mm -hmm. It stays just every bit as strong. And so what EMDR does essentially is it's a process that helps people's brains um, have the same experience with their traumatic memory. So the memory itself isn't altered. It doesn't suddenly become okay. You don't forget it. It still happened, but you're able to put it in the past. The past and the present become untangled from each other. It doesn't hijack your nervous system. It doesn't hijack your body and your somatic cues. You don't become overwhelmed by it anymore. Mm -hmm. It starts to fade like that dinner. Like, yes, I know that happened and I remembered that happened and I'll probably always remember that happened, but it's not mm -hmm. kind of lurking, you know, to knock me sideways anytime something triggers it anymore. Mm. So we know, I suppose, for some people that happens naturally. I, I don't even know if that's the right word because I don't want to imply that if that doesn't happen for someone, it's somehow unnatural. I always think of like trauma is often a very normal response to a really abnormal situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think for people listening, yeah, I definitely want people to not be thinking, well, if, that, if I get stuck and I'm having flashbacks and I'm you know, having experiences where I feel like I'm completely back there. It's definitely not because of something that you did or didn't do. We sort of don't 100% right. understand why some mm -hmm. people are stuck in that time loop and some people don't do it. Mm -hmm. do you yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so important because it's really a function of the central nervous system. And mm -hmm. so what I feel sad about is when I think about people historically who've had PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, or who've had trauma symptoms, who have thought that it was maybe some sort of failure of like optimism or mm -hmm. failure of will. Sometimes what I hear with birth trauma is like, you should just be grateful you have a healthy baby. Ugh, yeah. And I know, which is just such a rough spot anyway. But you know, what's so important to understand, and this is 
not my words, it's the words of a really great trauma researcher, Bessel van der Kolk. He talks about how it's a central nervous system response. Mm -hmm. It's really happening in your brain and body. It is biophysical and it is held separate from anything else. It has nothing to do with how grateful you are. It has nothing to do with how tough you are. It has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with how good of a mood you're in. It's a central nervous system response. It's a protective response and it's something that's happening Mm -hmm. in a brain and body level. And so you know, to me, what I say a lot of times in the groups that I run is, look, you can be grateful and have trauma. Mm. They really have nothing to do with each other. You can have a sunny, optimistic attitude and have trauma. They have nothing Mm. to do with each other. They really don't. Mm. Okay. So what would a session look like? I'm saying to myself, okay, this sounds something reasonable. It's recommended by the who. (laughs) What what am I actually going to go and do in this room with you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So it obviously like every therapy looks a little bit different with each therapist's personality, but there's some Mm -hmm. things that you can count on. Um, One of them is that EMDR relies heavily on what we call bilateral stimulation. And all that is, is a fancy term that means Mm -hmm. um, either sounds or sights or tactile sensations that alternate sides of the body. Mm -hmm. And so that might be via headphones that could be via tappers that you hold in your hand that alternate um, vibration mm-hmm. um, that could be through looking at something with your eyes that goes back and forth mm-hmm. um, but the idea is that all of them have in common that there's a bilateral piece to them that that's really integral to the emdr work um, they think perhaps it has something some relationship to you know when you go into REM sleep Um, Mm. how your eyes will move back and forth. There's something Mm. to do with this bilateral piece that we know helps the brain process stimulus. Mm. Um, And so that's, that you'll see in some form you'll get bilateral, whether it's you put on headphones, you listen to music, which is something that I use. um, You're going to have something bilateral happening. So we know that. Um, Another thing that is really neat about EMDR is that you should start the process with what we call resourcing. So what that means is your first experience with EMDR should actually be something that's strengthening, that's calming, Mm. that's helpful to your central nervous system. It functions later as like this life raft when you need it. And so um, that that sort of dress rehearsal with Mm. positive cues is an important thing that's common. Um, And then, you know, from there it varies. What's amazing is that the research pretty consistently shows uh, with a single incident trauma. So what that means is if somebody has trauma from something that they, um, they don't have pre-existing trauma, it's not an ongoing thing. Uh, they didn't bring trauma to the experience. Um, they had something in a single incident that caused trauma. So an example of that could be like a car accident or PTSD mm-hmm. or birth, if there's no pre-existing trauma, um, that they are showing an 87% cure of symptom rate between 84 and 87% with three 90-minute EMDR sessions. Yeah. So So something that's pretty remarkable is that it's compared to like talk therapy. It's pretty, Mm. it's pretty short. There's, it's a pretty quick um, response. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, what used to be, I suppose it still is the gold standard. So the kind of recommended for something like cognitive behavior therapy is more like 24 sessions, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. 24, 50 minute sessions. So about a year of work, give or take what research and who you talk to and, Mm-hmm. So that's quite a significant difference. Yeah. Yeah. I started, I did, I did therapy without EMDR for about a decade. Um, and then that's when I added EMDR and it was an adjustment 
Mm. to integrate those two because yeah, it does work very quickly. The other thing that's nice about that is there's often with EMDR periods of silence where you are um, thinking about the memory and experiencing the bodily sensations with the support of the therapist. Mm. What's helpful is that you don't have to verbally describe and rehash every single detail and experience. Mm. It's, it's helpful to continue to communicate with the therapist back and forth so that they can help you through the process. But a lot of it's happening inside your own mind and body. And for people who, um, maybe are struggling to talk about it. One of the things that Bessel van der Kolk says that I love is that he says, if they can talk about it, it's not the most traumatic part. Mm. He says that it's a feature of trauma that the word centers of our brain fail us because our central nervous system is overwhelmed. And so one of the things I like a lot about it is that talking helps, but it's not required for the reprocessing piece. And what I often find because my background is talk therapy is that people will often do EMDR first and then later want to talk. Now I want to talk about it. Now I want to talk about what it means. And now I want to talk about where do I go from here. And now I want to talk about resilience and how it's impacted my relationships. Mm. Um, and suddenly they have all these words where when we first met, they could hardly speak about it. Mm. Which makes a lot of sense in a way of like sorting out, shifting all of that nervous system activity first, getting someone mm-hmm. confident that actually I can settle myself before mm-hmm. we start with the like, well, let's build up to settling you in between Mm -hmm. talking about what happened. I guess it's the best fit thing, right, isn't it? Like EMDR or CBT or anything else, there's no perfect thing that everybody should be doing. I always think Mm -hmm. of it like um, (laughs) like exercising, weight loss and all that kind of stuff. If there was like one perfect thing we would all be doing, then nobody would be doing weight. Then we wouldn't need to have anything else. Yeah, exactly. And we know it's (laughs) like that. So it's a matter of trying out what fits. Okay, so people don't have to rehash the whole story. It's quick. What are some of the potential cons or I suppose difficulties in maybe just finding someone who can use this technique? Yeah, well, so I think that you hit the nail on the head in that finding somebody who can do this technique is, is a challenge. I don't know how it is where you live, but here it's, it's quite a, a crisis, a mental health care crisis. It's really hard for people to access affordable and adequate care. Um, and so it's rarely covered by anybody's insurance. There's an affordability issue there. Mm-hmm. There's an accessibility issue there. If you're not in a major metropolitan area, you may not be mm-hmm. close to anybody who can provide that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think is important to say is that it, uh, there's an intensity to the process. That mm-hmm. means that sometimes people begin the process and then decide they don't want to do it yet. And that's mm-hmm. okay too. Um, and that's, I think that is specifically different than other talk therapy, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a specific protocol with EMDR that, um, it's really meant to get to the heart of the trauma. It's a, it's a sharp scalpel. And so if you're not in a space where perhaps your uh, support system or your world can really support you diving into deep work for, you know, Mm. a month's time, that's not always right for everybody at that time. Mm. Um, There is some specialty work. If you're somebody who does have complex PTSD or or trauma from attachment or what we, um, if you know that you're somebody who struggles with what we call dissociation, Mm. Um, dissociation is when you really disconnect from your body and experiences because you're overwhelmed Mm. Uh, then you need to take a gentle approach to EMDR because the intensity of it can trigger dissociation if your therapist isn't aware that something you struggle with and doesn't have specialized training Mm, okay so it really is important to set up I suppose 
an understanding of what someone needs to help you with, but being careful not to sort of put someone on the spot to say like, right, let me have all of it. So I can see potentially this is maybe, I always say this to trauma clients anyway, this is not something you want to do in your lunch break. And then right. go back. I've had, I'm laughing because I've literally had people come do it on their lunch break and they say the yeah. same. They're like, huh, now I have to wipe my eyes and put my makeup back on and go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's doing any trauma work. I think it's a process of like, what are you doing in that 20 minutes beforehand? Because you're going to be mm -hmm. in the waiting room feeling potentially really anxious and really nervous. And what am I going to say? And what do I have to do? And then afterwards, like maybe you get the big nervous system crash and you feel relief, but then mm -hmm. it's like, can you actually even get in your car and drive back to work? Can you go and be with your children? So it's a real, it's not just that session. It's what are you doing mm -hmm. after the session, which yeah, yeah. Just setting up so that you're in a way, just as you say, you've got the support system, you've got the time, you've got the money. That's definitely an issue. It's a big one. Yeah. That, um, I guess, I don't know if we touched on this yet, but it's EMDR is not a standard part of any mental health clinician's training. Right. That it's like taught as part of your go off and get your psych degree. It's definitely not that. It's a separate thing that you need to train in. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Finding someone who can do that might be challenging, as you say, because it's not just something that any therapist can do. Correct. Yeah. It's something not only that not any therapist can do, but the therapists who do it have spent a lot of time and money gaining that specialty. And mm -hmm. so therefore it does become an affordability issue. It's not mm -hmm. just something you can get anywhere. Mm. And this wasn't like just a weekend course that you did presumably either. <laughs> no, exactly. It's a lot of time, energy, money. You go through a whole supervision process yourself again, as mm -hmm. you know, with the EMDR. So yeah. It's on top of that. Okay, so this might be potentially something if people have got birthing clients who know that they need some sort of support and they're ready for something. What about for actual birth workers who have vicarious trauma? Could this be something that's useful for them? I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I love that question. So I started obviously working with birthing families, but an interesting thing started to happen over the years, which is that as my name got out as somebody who worked with this issue, slowly the birth workers started to trickle in. Mm. Um, and now at this point, I have a decent number of um, medical providers in my practice, as well as uh, doulas. Um, and I just believe so strongly in this work for vicarious or secondary trauma. Mm. Uh, one of the things I shared with you that I used to be really shy about, but I've decided I'm not going to be shy about it anymore because I think it is helpful to people. You know, I work, let's review, I work as a birth doula. I also work with people and their trauma all day long. So all day long, all I'm talking about is the worst thing that anybody's ever experienced hour after hour. <laughs> We're a bit crazy, aren't we? Wow. I know it's a little bit of a, and I love it. I love it so much. It's such sacred and meaningful work, but it's very intense. <clears throat> and, you know, I've had my own trauma also as a person giving birth. So what I tell people, you know, at this point, because I'm a provider educator and because I also train interns who are therapists, so I've stopped being shy about it. And what I've started saying to them is, if it was not for EMDR, for me doing EMDR as a client, for me going to a therapist, paying money and getting EMDR mm -hmm. for the trauma I've incurred, I would not still be a birth worker and I would not still be working with trauma. That's I know I wouldn't. Testimony and a half right there. 
I know I wouldn't because it starts to compound. And it, and I wasn't, I, I didn't go there readily, right? Physician, heal thyself. What does that say? Like, it, I thought, oh, I know what to do. You know, I know I need to get sleep and I need to do mm-hmm. self-care and I'll just, it will be fine, right? Yeah, Which is crazy because I know that that's not true. But I thought that I would be the exception. And what ended up happening to me over time, I think, is what ends up happening to a lot of providers, which is that it wasn't any one thing that really did it. It was a, a cumulative effect. Mm-hmm. And until that last one thing, that last mm-hmm. straw. And then I found myself sitting in a session with a person describing their traumatic birth. And I'm I, in the middle of session, I'm having flashbacks mm-hmm. and I'm realizing, oh, this is, I can't be a good therapist right now because I've got to do something with this. And that was my wake up mm-hmm. call. So I know I was headed for burnout. Um, And now, you know, part of my work, which I enjoy so much is that I actually have providers and professionals who they're not seeing me every week. They Mm -hmm. kind of come and go and it's just maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you, you come and go to a fitness class, you come and go to a chiropractor, you come and go to get a massage when you have muscle tension, when they've had some hard experiences, they come, they book appointments, we work through it and we do what I call just clear the decks clear out that stuff. So it's not going to get, it's not going to build an accumulation Mm. and then they can go back. And that to me is just so meaningful for two reasons. Number one, because those providers that really care are often the ones that are most vulnerable to trauma. And those are the providers we want sticking around for starters. So we want providers who are emotionally attached to their patients and clients, excuse me. And we want them to stick around the other thing. So here's something we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but when I was attending a birth as a birth doula and it was actually a birth for somebody I was really close to, excuse me, sorry, it's summery here and I have a lot of allergies. Um, (laughs) It was for a birth that I of somebody that I was very close to. And what I witnessed in the provider is I actually witnessed them having a trauma response. Um, something had occurred in the birth that I won't get into the details and the, the demeanor of the midwife just completely changed mm. from jovial and warm and collaborative and conversational. And I knew exactly what I was looking at because mm. I sit across from it all day long. I knew that she was having a trauma response and that set me down this path of investigation to just realize that because of the way that trauma hijacks your central nervous system, Mm -hmm. if you have untreated trauma and then you're in a line of work in alignment with the trauma you received, Mm -hmm. your ability to make good clinical decisions with snap judgments that are Mm -hmm. life and death, it's compromised because you're no longer making decisions about what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. You're now making decisions about something that's not even happening in the room. Whether or not you realize it, your, your nervous system is flooded, your adrenaline and cortisol, your body is scared and is in fight and flight, and it's going to impact the way you give care, not to mention the long-term physical damage of that, right? So for me, it's just become this passion that not only do I believe like as a trauma therapist and a birth worker that I'm all about doing my own trauma work and I'm not going to be shy about it anymore, but then also for medical providers, because I've attended enough births that I now have the perspective that you know, we know that over 30% of obstetric nurses have PTSD right now. Mm. I'm frankly shocked the number's not higher. Mm. I I fill out this form. Where's that information going to go? I agree with you. Yes. You can say to people, it's confidential, it's this, it's that. But I think sometimes when you're so deep in the system of mistrust, yeah. and disrespect and abuse and all the things that go on, people are like, no, I'll just say I'm fine. 
I really honestly believe that's what people do. They are so afraid. I think so. Someone is going to get hold of that information. What what's going to happen to it? So they just say, "Yeah, I'm fine." You know, I was just speaking with a group of obstetric nurses recently, and one of the suggestions they make, because when I talk with providers, they talk about like how they can prevent trauma for their patients and also how they can treat or prevent trauma for themselves. And so I was talking with them about the value of debriefing, how important that is, and a collaborative, supportive environment to debrief after a traumatic experience. I mean, these nurses literally will have been holding their bathroom break for six hours, not eating or drink anything for 12 hours. They will hold a lifeless infant or something equivalent horrific and then but not even have time to go use the restroom, let alone cry, walk into the next room and have to tend to somebody who's in the middle of the most exciting moment of their life and put a smile on their face and do their job. I mean, mm -hmm. the weight of what they carry is huge. So I was talking with them about how important it is when all is said and done to have a safe place to debrief with fellow people who get it. And then they told me something that just was so eye-opening. They said, yeah, our facility offered a debrief. Mm. And they said, let me tell you what that was. Debrief was, first of all, with fellow nurses who experienced the traumatic event and their superiors. Mm. So our bosses were all there mm. at the debrief. So there's, you know, you mm. and I know working with trauma, like how that's already a setup mm. to not be able to process the event. And the purpose of the debrief, it was called a debrief, but the purpose was to decide what went wrong, who mm. made mistakes, how to assign blame, and how to make policy changes so that it doesn't happen again. Mm. And I said, well, that's wonderful for them because I'm glad that they're learning from mistakes, but that is not a mm. psychological debrief that is so traumatizing. Mm. But on top of all of that, now you're having to worry about finger pointing and blame mm. and shame and your job and, and you're traumatized. Yeah. And you're supposed to go back out on the floor and give good loving care and not overreact when the same experience plays itself out in front of you. Mm. Of course. You know, of course. You need to be resilient. You need right. to be strong. Generations of people before you have done this and they were fine. This is like it's just so That's much, the narrative, isn't it? Yeah. There's just so much stuff I think that goes into this, as you say, like there's the stats and there's all the stuff behind the stats where We've got a situation where, as I, as I really strongly feel, people aren't even comfortable to fill out a form, like just a form that's going off for some research purposes because I think people are so scared to say what's actually happening, how they're actually feeling because you know, they think, oh, I'm going to lose my job. This is all my fault. I should mm -hmm. be stronger. I should be braver. I should go and get my own counselling and everything is put back on the individual. Back on them. Yes. Well, and if you, and if you, I mean, don't even, I don't know how the system is in Australia. There's so much strain in our medical care system. It, mm -hmm. You know, what ends up happening is if you're the one who says, hey, what's happening is not okay. Mm -hmm. um, I've watched it happen. You become the, um, the quote unquote crazy one <laughs> who quote can't cope. Mm. And you get sort of put out to pasture, right? You get referred out to psychiatric mm. and that's the way of them just marginalizing your voice and, and not having to listen that something's mm. wrong. And so of course, if you watch that happen to a coworker and then you're not okay, mm. you're absolutely not going to say a word. Mm. No, you're not going to admit it to anyone. Mm. So there's a lot of Oh gosh, we could just go on and on and on. About I know we could. Yeah. I feel I feel it's my new my new loves as my providers and my birth professionals. I mean, we could talk about doulas and the amount of trauma that I think that they have. There's so much.
And I think um, that's part of why we love doing this work because I think, well, where are people going to get the information? Nobody's going to sit you down after work and say, okay, here's a range of options that you could have. In Australia, if you're lucky, it's the, like you get three sessions of employee assistance counselling, but that's generally going to be with someone who maybe isn't even an expert in birth or in birth work or trauma or knows any of those sorts of challenges. Mm -hmm. So it's, and as you say, this language around a debrief and what different people understand by that versus like, oh, I thought a psychological debrief is supposed to be this, but actually like, oh, it's actually just a grievance procedure. It's Mm -hmm. actually easy, as you say, to sit down and figure out like who did what wrong and who's to blame and like all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you look at the statistics, the statistics show that even with people under reporting. So when, you know, one of the things I was going to say earlier is that I've gotten to the point now where I've started to try to change my language and not say if, so it's when I'm talking to providers, Mm -hmm. I've stopped saying, if you experience trauma, I started saying when, Mm -hmm. when you experience trauma, because I've sat with enough of them to know that what their daily life is like in their job to say, it's Mm -hmm. just a matter of time. I mean, the- I think that's it. I think it would be wonderful to think there would be birth workers who sit there and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never witnessed a traumatic birth. Everything's always been wonderful. You're new. When you're an independent midwife and you're doing home birth and it's out on some beautiful branch, like, no, I just, I think you're right. It is a win. It's one in three women. So it's a win. It's a definitely, it's a win. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And that's not even, you know, to, to say there's, there's the traumatic piece around like the subjective experience of the woman and her family. And then there's also the fact that obstetric emergencies, you know, mm. like death happens and mm. you don't get into birth work because that's what you're in it for. That's, that's mm. so jarring to the system. Mm. You get into birth work because of the beauty and the sacredness and the desire to serve and see life born. Right. Mm. And so it's just, there's just something there about the way that in a maternity unit, life and death both exist side by side. That's so complex. It's mm-hmm. such a heavy and beautiful load to carry, but mm-hmm. the expectation that you should carry it and like just pretend it's fine, it's not working. It's not. And I often think about this idea of if this was like a physical illness, if you were, people were turning out to work and getting cancer from going to work, just from going to work not about whether you're doing a good job or a not good job or whatever. Like there would be some sort of outrage. There would be some sort of, right, this is a national health crisis, an international health crisis. We need to do something. And yet yes, we've got all these stats about people and how they're just sort of being made to like buck up and get on with it. And you think that's not the same attitude as if this was some sort of physical illness that you got just from going to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that has something to do with the fact that we can't see the brain. And we just, you know, if you think about this idea, like, I I love there's this meme circulating, it's just captures my thoughts where it's talking about, you know, saying something's all in your head, Mm. right? It's like saying it's all in your heart, or it's all in your lungs, or it's all Mm. in your bones, like, Mm. all in your head, we say that to mean not real, we say that Mm. to mean you're making it up. But in your head is the organ that runs your entire system. (laughs) And so I feel like that should be a sign of this is something important. But because we can't see it, I think we do still have this idea that it's about toughness. It's about optimism. Mm -hmm. It's about being, you know, 
positive instead of realizing that this is a central nervous system dysfunction. It's, it's mm-hmm. physiological, just like any other physiological outcome that you mm-hmm. have from work that you do. I have several people I love and know that are, for instance, they're firefighters mm-hmm. and they have physical injuries from work mm-hmm. on the job right? They get time off. It's paid. Their medical care is covered. Their surgeries are covered. Their disabilities Mm -hmm. covered. Their physical therapy is covered. It should be. They Mm -hmm. got that through the course of work and saving people's lives. Mm -hmm. But yet when it's the injury that we can't see that affects the whole rest of your life, we just tell people to like, you know, go home and take a walk. (laughs) (sighs) It's so true. So, so true. Gosh. Tell me what else you're doing to look after yourself. This is always what I like asking people other than going and doing your own EMDR, which is amazing. I'm so glad that you said you do that for yourself because we were talking a bit before we started recording of like, it's one thing having a professional say, go and do this thing. I support it. I'm interested in it, but it's actually different having someone saying, yeah, I do this for myself to look after myself. So that's amazing. What else do you do? Yeah. What else do I do? Well, you know what? That's a really interesting question. I, after doing trauma work for how, where was I at? Like 12 or 13 years. So kind of recently, I got to this place where I was sort of having a crisis of, we'll say like a spiritual crisis or crisis of the soul where, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm doing this really meaningful work where I love working with my trauma clients, but it it reminds me of the, you know, the story of the starfish washing Mm -hmm. up on shore, right? It's like, I'm throwing them back one at a time and it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and I love each one and I kiss it and I bless it and I say, go Mm -hmm. into the sea. And then with every wave, there's a thousand more of them. Mm -hmm. And so at some point I was just really running the risk of just tragic burnout because I thought I cannot keep up. My -hmm. phone lines are full. My interns are full. I can't keep up Mm -hmm. with the demand and they just keep coming and I have to do something else. And Mm -hmm. so that was when I started adding um, the education piece. So I started educating for evidence-based birth first because I feel that informed consent is a big protector against trauma, big protector. So that was my way of saying, I'm going to do something upstream, something like positive and affirmative for my soul right? I'm going to get people at the front end. Um, And then that ended up turning into very quickly, much quicker than I thought, ended up turning into provider education across the board. So helping providers figure out how to stop traumatizing patients, Mm. talking with birth workers about how to help their um, clients who've got trauma, um, talking with therapists about how to give good care, because I got really tired of hearing the story about the new mom with the baby and she puts the baby in the car seat and she goes across town and she's trying to arrange nap schedule and feeding schedule and diaper schedule. Mm -hmm. And like, she gets herself into a therapist's office just to be told, you know, you should just be grateful you're all alive and you have a healthy baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't want to hear that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I started saying, okay, so we've got to do more. And actually, so I think that that's a funny answer to your question because I'm aware that that's more work, but it actually <laughs> is for me so important to self-care because it's like the work of the soul, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. my ability to say, I'm not just catching the starfish, although I'm still doing that. And I will always love my starfish. But at some point I, I laugh with a mentor of mine, I'm like at some point someone's got to say, why do these starfish keep washing up on the shore? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, How are they getting here? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I'm at. Besides that, I take a good deal of time off. So I actually, um, you know, in the more fun pathway, I I take every Friday off. I hike in the mountains every Friday. It's an important part of how I deal and cope with the heaviness of the week. And also it's out of cell phone range. So (laughs) 
I am unreachable, which is miraculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, to that point, I, I do a lot of things on social media. I have free online support groups and that sort of thing. It's very easy for that to bleed into my family life. So I actually mm -hmm. have very specific rules about when I will turn my computer on, when I will go to, you know, Facebook apps on my phone um, so that my weekends and my hikes, I'm not doing any of those things. And I'm actually going to take the month of July off. So I'm really mm -hmm. excited about that. Yay. This is good. And I think, you know, it's just, it goes back to this idea of, we can say to ourselves, yes, these are the things I'm going to do to look after myself. But I always just think, you know, recognition is better than recall. So I think there is something neurologically that happens when you look at other people and you listen to other people and they say, yeah, this is what I'm doing, rather than just sort of that, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fall into that, like, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do. And then we wait until we start, you know, diving a little bit and struggling a little bit. <laughs> there in front of our phone going um yeah what am I supposed to do to be looking after right so, or flailing yep yeah so this is why it is so 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 important I think to ask that question because I think sometimes I see it I see the glimmer or I hear the slight ah, in people's voices but oh no I have to come up with something amazing I'm like just come up with something. You can just come up with something because this is like <laughs> don't you feel like the longer that you do this the more you start to think well that's old news I've already recommended that to someone so I need to come up with a new thing to recommend <laughs> and really the old news is often just the most solid advice <laughs> I remember yeah. I remember this is so embarrassing. I, you know, I've read all the research on mindfulness and I've recommended it to clients and I've taken classes on it and blah, blah, blah. And I was seeing my therapist and she said, you know, I really think you should do mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I'd considered that I wasn't actually doing it. And I thought that's a really good point. <laughs> so I added a meditation practice to my, you know, getting ready in the morning with before clients come in. Yeah. And um, that's an important part of how I, I stay okay right? Because I'm getting ready to receive heavy stuff. Yeah. And it's, again, not something you want to just zip from person. Although some people do, and that's how they mm -hmm. function. I don't, I don't trust those people. So yep. I just see nine clients today. I go home. I don't take any of this stuff home with me. And I remember like in my training when I was younger in my twenties, just thinking like, okay, that's the goal I have to get to. I have to get Aww. to this standard where it's like okay you just zip through particularly if you're in private practice you just zip through a bunch of clients you go home and you feel nothing and I still hear I still oh. registrars and interns who are maybe not directly but indirectly taught that and I think that's a massive problem as well this culture of well I can do it I'm fine mm -hmm. what's your mm -hmm. problem mm -hmm. I think a lot of my stuff is around trying to counteract that and go do you know what that might be working for some people some of the time Probably not all of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'll tell you as somebody who did that for a couple of years is that I crashed and burned really hard. Yeah. I don't you do, do it do. anymore. You do. <laughs> yeah, I can do this. And the buzz of like working like one or two days a week and just like mashing through it. But then you kind of just go, no, this is like not, it's not sustainable. No, I had a complete physiological crash and burn. Like I just physically couldn't do it. And now I look back on that time and think, how did I ever even sustain it for that long? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, I think sometimes I look back and go, gee, when I got nine hours of sleep a night, there's a lot more I could achieve. <laughs> sure. There's that too. There's a lot more energy output. Yeah. But I, you know, I think about, I, I like that you asked that question actually, Erin, because I feel like it, the, 
the conversations that usually happen by default are the ones that are flashy that people are proud of. You know, I don't walk around talking about my self-care. It's just not like a conversation piece. <laughs> but, but I do think that it is an important statement, not only to my clients, but to my interns, you know, for me to say, listen, you know, for interns, because there's a liability thing in an emergency, here's how you can get a hold of me. But I, my phone is off. And, and yours should be too. And I encourage you to have it off. And I've had interns come to me from other sites um, and look at me with like tears in their eyes. Like, are you serious? Mm. <laughs> are you serious? Really? I can do that here? I said, you better do that. Listen, mm. our entire job is to sit with the worst of the worst of the worst experiences mm. and emotions that are so heavy that the person can no longer carry them. And that's what brought them through your door. And you're going to do that over and over today. Mm. So yeah, you better turn your phone off. Good Lord. It's a simple thing sometimes, isn't it? I think it would like, yeah. like common sense psychology. That's the really valuable stuff sometimes. The simple oh. stuff. Yeah. And it's what we don't talk about because it's simple, right? So we forget that people who are new don't hear it. No, or don't want to hear it or uh, yeah. there's all those sorts of things. Talk to me about um, resources, things you listen to, things that you read or watch that other people might find interesting, whether it's related to trauma and birth or not. I just think mm -hmm. it's spread dandelion seeds. Yeah. So some of this answer is going to be self-promotion because I started resources because I couldn't find them. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, so I started this organization called the Birth and Trauma Support Center. And um, one of the things that I'm building on there is a referral page. So if you go to birthandtraumasupportcenter.org, there's a referral page where I am in growing a list of birth professionals and therapists mm. who are competent in this area. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just started this year. I think so far I have a few dozen on there. I'm hoping it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow because mm -hmm. I want people to have access to really good care, um, both in a midwife, in a doula, in a therapist, mm -hmm. in a lactation consultant, in a childbirth educator, in a nurse, you know, all of those mm -hmm. things. Um, similarly, I have a, a free peer-to-peer -peer support group on Facebook. Um, it's called Birth and Trauma Support Group. Um, some stuff for, you know, partners, also stuff for professionals. So mm -hmm. I've got a professional group, birth and trauma support professionals. That's all yes, affiliated indeed. on Facebook. Yeah. Same thing. It just keeps growing because <laughs> what happens is people ask me for resources and then I can't have it. I don't have any for them. So then mm -hmm. I think, well, let's just start that. Um, so yeah, some other resources, I really enjoy um, the work of Cheryl Beck. She's a wonderful researcher. If anybody's interested in reading the research, she was really instrumental. I give her a lot of credit in some of my early days in me trying to grapple with this. She's done excellent mm -hmm. work on this subject. And now she's doing some work on trauma resilience, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, another resource I've mentioned for trauma in general is Bessel van der Kolk. He's written the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. It is the definitive textbook on trauma in my, in my mind. I just couldn't love it more. It's very meaty. It's probably for a <laughs> professional, but I have some non-professionals who've read it for fun. Um, although that's rare. Cheryl <laughs> um, <clears throat> Beck's also written Traumatic Childbirth. That's a good book for professionals mm -hmm. that are wanting more information. I highly recommend that. Uh, Penny Simkin's written When Survivors Give Birth, yeah. which isn't about birth trauma per se, but it is about how trauma impacts the experience of birth. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, I have ongoing provider training and I'm doing that through the psychologyofbirth.com. So that's another place where people can find like what I'm reading, what I'm teaching, good resources, good referrals. That's amazing. Thank you for the work that you're doing because you're right. There's nothing like you can't even find birth listed as a trauma in any of the diagnostic tools that we're using. No, I was so excited about the shift in the, in the DSM five. So if anybody who's listening doesn't know what I mean, the diagnostic and statistics manual is like the Bible of mental health disorders. Mm. It's got all of, it's like the physician's desk reference. It has all the mental health disorders. And part of the reason birth trauma was so hard to understand for me initially, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning is that in previous publications, you needed to have certain criteria for an event to Mm. be considered traumatic. And mainly you needed to think that uh, your life was threatened or the life of someone you love. And that was tricky because sometimes people had trauma, but they didn't think that their life was threatened. And I didn't know where to put that. Mm -hmm. So the next publication, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual 5, um, came out with a sort of widening of the criteria to like sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the criteria got a little bit looser. So I feel like it fits a little better now. Mm -hmm. But even now, and I say this for people because if you go and try to find a local therapist to help you with this and you get kind of a sideways look, it's not you, it's not you, it's them. Yeah, it's because in our profession, we are taught that trauma can only occur under certain set of circumstances that are very narrow. And frankly, mm-hmm. it's not accurate mm-hmm. and it causes professionals to be blind. Mm-hmm. So just know that if you get a weird sideways look, that is why, and it's not you, it's mm-hmm. them. And just, you know, send them some books, and like move on to someone who gets it. Hopefully there'll be a nice long list soon. Yeah. But, Sometimes half the battle is um, getting people to get out of that filtered thinking, particularly for birthing people, because I think so often there's another woman just coming through or a couple or whatever, and, oh, there's a baby. Oh, there's tears. They're upset. Oh, it's postnatal depression, maybe anxiety. Move right along. Don't even ask about the birth. Don't even ask. Mm -hmm. How did you feel? Did you feel horrified? Did you feel terrified? Don't even think to ask about the birth. And so we have this. I suppose culture of at least what I'm seeing here is so many people who go off, they see someone, they get a diagnosis, they take their antidepressants, the antidepressants don't work. And it's like, Oh, did nobody ask you about the birth? Cause we're so we've become so hyper-focused on catching postnatal depression and anxiety that we've forgotten about all the other things that occur in the postpartum period. Yes. You know, it's getting better. It's getting better, but it's still not a, Well, one of the things that I often like to share these statistics of comorbidity when I'm teaching classes, because so in the general population, uh, generally between six and 8% of women have fully diagnosable PTSD after their birth. Mm. And I say women because in these studies, they've identified as women, but um, I know that in general, there's more than women who give birth. Uh, There's no research research on that. So that's why I have to use the word woman here. Um, But we know that over 30% have symptoms of trauma that are clinically relevant. So they're having, you know, flashbacks or trouble sleeping, but they're not meeting all the criteria. So between Mm. six and 8% meet all the criteria. Okay. So that's the setup. But if you take somebody who had a challenging birth experience, according to the study providers, right? And then um, you take a diagnosis of postpartum depression, Mm. 50% of them have fully Mm. diagnosable PTSD. Yeah. 
So for me, it's really relevant that symptoms like dissociation look like depression, Mm -hmm. symptoms like hypervigilance, which is another symptom of trauma, looks like Mm -hmm. anxiety. And so I think that embedded in this entire maternity mental health care crisis is this totally invisible trauma threat. Mm -hmm. I really do. And so that's why I'm thankful for your work. Because I think that you talking with providers is like, this is how we're going to change things. This is how Mm. we're going to increase awareness because postpartum depression and anxiety responds differently and responds to different treatments Mm. than postpartum trauma. Yeah. They need different modalities, different Mm. treatments approaches. And so if you get a false diagnosis, you're getting not adequate treatment. It's a really important Mm. process. I can't even tell you, it's so uncommon for a provider to even know that trauma could be a concern, mm. right? Yeah. It's not Every so often now though, I'll hear of a provider who diagnoses their client with um, trauma and sends them to my office. And I just want to be like, I give them all the gold stars. <laughs> Yay. They know <laughs> it's so rare. Yeah, you're right. It is. And I think for people, all those reactivating feelings of this is my fault. I should have done something. Mm particularly if it's, well, I actually went to see someone and I went and I started treatment and it didn't help, which I guess is the other thing with trauma is that, you know, there's like upwards of 40% of the first thing that you try isn't going to work for you. That's just the nature of how different people respond to different trauma treatments. So as we said at the start, there's no like one, you do this and you'll be fine. Sometimes you need to try a few different things and holistic things as well. Like I think, Mm -hmm. as you were talking about before, the... The training that a lot of us got was you sit down and you talk. There wasn't anything about the body because, at least for me as a psychologist working in Australia, you don't touch people. Right. Here too. <laughs> Here too. It's a no-no. You do not touch people. Okay. So there's all this bodily stuff. How do we deal with that? And whether that is, yeah, working holistically with someone else who does do touch, or whether you don't even need to consider using touch, but doing something with the body because the body is attached to the brain. And I think like so much of even people who are really expert trained, just it's neck up stuff. Right. Right. And activity. This is something that I will say to my clients. I'll say, you know, the trauma doesn't reside in the same places that insight does. And Mm -hmm. so you cannot insight your way out of trauma. Mm. You can have all the insights that you need. That's not going to make the trauma disappear because it's happening in a different level. Mm. And I think that for me was really to go full circle is what led me into EMDR because I did want to respect the boundaries of the profession, but we needed to bring the central nervous system into the work. Mm. We had to somehow, and it's not the only way to do it. There are many modalities that do that. Mm. It just happened to be the one that I liked the research on. So, but the idea is that we are, like you said, we're trained all about thought Mm. and now that we have wonderful technology, the more that we measure, the more that we know, emotions and the body and the brain are not separate silos. No. They are all one and the same. Mm. So we have, to, we have to, like you're saying, there has to be an acknowledgement of what's happening below the neck mm. in I trauma. It's, it's, you know, whilst it's frustrating at the moment, my hope is always that it's going to get exciting. I think, oh, by the time my girls are old enough to be birthing, if that's what they choose to do, this is going to be like, is that real? Like, that's really what people did? You just didn't even think about, yeah, I just, all the different layers of things that can potentially will no longer be problematic, I suppose. 
I am hoping so hard with you <laughs> that to, to make myself encouraged. Sometimes I'll read old information on, you know, birth in the 1950s or 60s, back in the twilight sleep, yeah. the twilight sleep era. And I'll think, well, okay, yeah, there's been a lot of evolution. <laughs> there can be more still. We've come a long ways. Oh, thank you so much. For talking thank you. Thank you for this work that you're doing, getting this information in the hands of professionals. I think that that mm. is, you know, it's so important to put it in the hands of consumers. I believe in that. And I love my starfish. But if you put it in the hands of one professional, you touch countless others, right? Mm. Because if their care is informed, if their care is trauma informed, then it's infinite impact. So thank mm. you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Know that when you work on yourself, this has a direct flow and effect to your colleagues, the birthing people you support and their babies. If you want to find out more about Krista, go to counseling with one L because it's American in Roseville. So Roseville as in R-O-S-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. Krista has amazing resources. Seriously, she's doing so many things, maybe too many things, with groups and classes, all the info is on her website. So rather than list everything that she's doing, I'll just send you over there, counsellinginroseville.com. Or you can just Google Krista Dancy, so Krista spelled with a K. Now, if you want to work with me, there's a few ways that you can do that. You can jump into one-on-one coaching, mentoring with me. I run training and support for birth workers and I run birthday briefs. So I'm running mini online training at the moment. The early bird tickets are closed because we're halfway through now, but you can wait for the next round if you're interested or you can just purchase the catch-up and the resources when it's finished. So that's a smaller online birth trauma training course it's nowhere near as big as the big big kahuna which is coming (laughs) this is the bigger passion project so this is the main staple of what i'm going to be offering um if you want updates for that please reach out you can find the link on my website or you can find it in my instagram i want you to stay in birth work you know if that's your goal and that's what you want to do but you've really got to look after yourself you seriously need to look after yourself and you know most of us can't do that all on our own we need help so ask for help if you need it reach out to me at drerin.com.au or on instagram at drerinbow e-r-i-n-b-o-w-e on instagram thanks for making the time for yourself particularly if it's been uncomfortable and you've got something to learn and grow from that if you're enjoying the podcast Do you want to leave me a review on iTunes if you're listening on iTunes? It helps bump up the ratings so more people can find it. That's just my goal. It's just to share the knowledge. Um, And thank you so much for allowing me to speak about my passions and do my soul work. I love it. Thank you.